We'll be in 1 Samuel, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23. You're looking at the whole chapter. They're excited to go. We've been working our way through 1 Samuel. We are at this uh, portion of 1 Samuel that deals with David on the run. He has been anointed king, but at the the same time Saul is king, and he is um, being attacked by Saul, being run out of town. We had a gruesome chapter we read last week of chapter 22 where Saul used this Edomite Doeg to kill the priesthood at Nob. And not just the priesthood, but uh, everyone who lived in Nob. um, Women, children, and men. And so it was a horrific story last week. And so that is the context as we see David uh, continuing to run away from Saul. Saul is... um, is attacking him and persecuting David, the anointed one. Just a reminder, as we read the Old Testament, why do we preach from the Old Testament? Why do we read it as Christians? Well, this is the story leading up to the coming of Christ. This is the promises we read about, that the fulfillment comes when Jesus arrives, that David is the anointed king, and Jesus is going to be in his line, our true king. So as we read about David, we, we think about Jesus, as, it, as he whispers his name, as he points to him. Really think about this as the gospel according to David as we read about these stories. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading all of chapter 23. If it's too long, you can remain seated. This is God's word. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I have given, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Keilah sur- surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the, of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. 
And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. And then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakalal, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and in our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May ye be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure, know, and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable, honoring, and glorifying to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we read this chapter, one verse that really stood out to me that really stands as sort of the that gives the temperature of the room, so to speak, as to what's happening in chapter 13 and gives us an idea of really how to understand this entire chapter and how it relates to our lives is in verse 13. And David and his men depart from Keilah, and it says they went wherever they could go. They went wherever they could go. They are just barely hanging on, and they're trying to find a place to go. You see, the Christian life is often a lot like wandering around in the wilderness. A good metaphor for the Christian life is is when Israel was in the wilderness, not yet in the promised land, not yet in glory for us, but being led by God, being in communion with God, and being with Him, even in the midst of the wilderness. And so you don't last very long in the desert or the wilderness if you don't have provisions, right? If you don't have basic necessities, bread, water, food and drink. I think back in my life and there's this uh, memory I have when I was young. You know, there's memories in your life and you're not quite sure how old you were, but you know know you're young. And so I was a young boy with my grandfather, Grandfather Ralph. We all called him Ralph. And we 
we're driving to our house, and it was one of those Virginia hot, hot summer days, so hot um, that you sweat in places you didn't know you had places, right? That's actually his line. Um, and we got to our house, and this is, remember, this is the before cell phones. Uh, this is actually before uh, we, you actually carried around water bottles all the time as well. So we get to the house, and it's locked. And we can't get in the house, and it's, it's 90 plus degrees, and we're sweating, we're hot. And so what we do as we're hanging out there waiting for my mom or my dad to show up, we go around the backyard, and we take the water hose, and we, we take a nice long drink out of the water hose. And some of you are like, oh, you drink out of the water hose. Remember, we didn't have any other options back then, and no cell phones. And that was some of the best water I remember drinking because when you are thirsty, when you're truly thirsty, you will drink deeply of whatever water you can find. And that's the memory I have. I don't remember who came and what the rest of the day, how it unfolded, but I remember being with him and that memory of drinking out of the water hose and just being refreshed. And so for the believer, our provisions come in the form of promises. Our provisions come in the form of promises. The Christian lives and breathes the promises of God. Yes, we have good rules from God, and we follow them, and and they're good, and we love them, but we have to live and breathe off His promises. But there's forces in the world today that are keeping us from listening to and living in the promises of God. Some describe the age we live in today as one of really marked uh, three things that mark our age. Continual consumption, ever-present anxiety, and self-focus. Those are the three main things that mark the age that we live in today. And it's ironic because with, with con- continual consumption, we have everything we need. We've got everything. All of our needs are supplied but it doesn't make us any less anxious. We're more anxious today than we've ever been. And we're more self-focused than we've ever been. That's the wilderness that we are walking through today as Christians. And it's an unsustainable environment for faith in God because what it teaches us is that you don't need to depend on God. You can depend on this modern world we've created for ourselves where we can consume, consume, consume. And so... What promises and assurances do we have in this desolate, trying time? What can we lean on? What promises has God given us? Well, there's three things in our text that I want to pull out for you that God has given us, that he offers us. First, we need direction. You have to know where you're going. And so he's given us a priest for that. He gives David a priest. And we'll talk about what form of direction that gives us today. And secondly, we need companions. You have to have someone with you to guide you, to encourage you, to be with you. And third, you need guidance. You need God's caring plan to encourage you and to give you confidence. So in the wilderness, God offers a priest, a companion, and his providence to sustain us. First, let's look at the priest that is with David. In verses 1 through 13, we see the direction that is given to David. We see him inquire of the Lord several times. When he asked, shall I go and attack these Philistines that are making a raid in Israel on this town called Keilah? Should I do this? He's asking for direction. He's going to God for his word. And you see, before, before we jump into that, that uh, aspect of this uh, narrative, let's talk about our own 
the own wilderness we live in, and, and where we seek direction today. Well, today we live in a time where there is no ultimate truth, or ultimate truth is not acknowledged. We live in a world where our feelings are the grounds for our beliefs. Right? Our feelings are the grounds for our beliefs. But for the Christian, our beliefs, what we know to be true, are the grounds for our feelings. They tell us how to feel. But we live in a world where it's backwards. How we feel is the standard of truth. And it's not that our feelings are to be totally dismissed, but they can't be trusted. We're not to trust our feelings, right? Because of the sin that's in our lives. And so we live in a world where it's backwards, where everything is driven by feelings. And, and Saul has been living this way. He's been led astray, led away from God by how he feels, how he wants to live. And he is a, he's, he's, his hypocrisy is stunning. In verse 21, he tells the men of Keilah, may you be blessed by the Lord. He's taken the name of the Lord, and he's the man who just killed all the, all the Lord's priests in the chapter before. He's living in this false reality, being led by his feelings. And the fact that he still takes the Lord's words of blessing on his mouth is truly astounding. How many of us have decided in our lives at, at a certain time to, to make a decision solely based upon how it would make you feel? and totally disregard God's word and how it relates to that decision. It's like our, our world's mantra is, if it feels good, do it. But God calls us to do things sometimes that are contrary to our feelings, doesn't he? He'll ask us to do hard and difficult things. You see the men that are with David, look at verse 3 and 4. The men are afraid What do they say? Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And so David asked of the Lord again, shall we go down against these Philistines? And he said, yes. You see, they're afraid, but God tells them to still do it. Many people will say, God won't ask you to do anything hard or difficult or that goes against your desires. Right? To go against your desires is actually the heresy of our world today. But that's not true. God wants us to take risks for him and to, be, and to put our trust in him alone. It's better to obey God and place all your fears and worries on him than disobey him and have safety and security rule your life. You, you won't be happy. And so what has God given us? I, I know some of you may be thinking, I surely would love to have the kind of revelation David had. Because he had this sure yes or no word from the Lord. Right? So the priest would come down, he had this ephod, which is basically this way of getting a yes or no from the Lord. Wouldn't that be nice to go, go through your days and, and say, Lord, should I, should I um, go across the bridge and, and, and uh, go eat lunch with this friend, or should I stay home? Yes or no? And he gives you a, a definitive answer. We want often to treat God like a a magic eight ball, don't we? We have something better than what David had. We have the full counsel of God. He he wasn't carrying around the, the complete word of God like we do. And no, it's not a yes or no, but we're led by the Spirit. 
as we read God's Word. So that's the first thing we have, is we have God's Word. And so if you're feeling distant from God, if you feel like He hasn't been speaking to you, ask yourself, are you reading His Word? Have you been in His Word? Do you open it up? Is it your guide? Remember what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete for every good work. Look how often David was turning to God's Word. In verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 11, he's inquiring of the Lord again and again. He turns to the Lord. So we have His Word. We also have His sacraments. And we'll talk about this in Sunday school, so it's a little plug to come to Sunday school after this, and we're going to talk about the sacraments. And what's a sacrament? Well, it's the Word of God made visible in water and bread and the cup. And God has always made His promises visible so that we could see it. Why? Because He works human beings and we need help. We need our faith to be sustained. If you go back to the very first covenant in the garden, the covenant of works with Adam and Eve, what visible signs were there? Well, the tree, the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With the covenant of Noah, what is the sign that is given? It's in the sky. We see it all the time. The rainbow. With Abraham, what is the sign of God's grace toward him and his family? Circumcision. Throughout the Old Testament, the temple, the sacrifices become this sign, this sacrament, that points them to this greater reality of the forgiveness of their sins. And in the New Testament, we have two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are tangible signs that God gives us of His promises. Brandon Ellis writes, Salvation is something God has done in Jesus to make us right with Him, not something we've done to make ourselves acceptable. And in the same way, God is the one at work in the sacraments, employing them as a means of grace, which we simply receive by faith. See, some people are not don't really like to talk about the sacraments too much because they think there's like some magic stuff behind it and that we can't really trust it and we need just to preach the word. But you have to remember, it's, it's all done by faith, not magic. We receive God's blessings in the sacraments by believing his word, just like we receive the blessings in the preaching of the gospel by believing the word. It's all by faith. And when we do receive the sacraments, Brandon Ellis writes, By faith, we are assured that the gospel of Christ's broken body and shed blood preached indiscriminately to all is the gospel hand-delivered through the minister to me personally in water, bread, and wine. Sacrament and word. And he says this, he continues and says, and if we're always tripping up over exactly how the deep mystery of the supper becomes our food and drink, or if we're smug about how our doctrine or practice is better than the church down the street, or even if we're lamenting how our church's observance falls short, then we're too busy doing something other than simply believing our Lord's word and receiving assurance and strength from Him. A sacrament is the word made visible and tangible to strengthen our weak faith. The sacraments are all about increasing our faith. So we have word, we have sacrament, and we have 
this great high priest. So David had a priest, a temporary priest, but we have the priest that all priests pointed to. I read about it in Hebrews 4 earlier in the service where the author writes, Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We have this high priest who is, una- who is not unable to, uh, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a perfect high priest. And what does that give us? It gives us confidence to draw near to him, to the throne of grace. And we can call out to him at any time, and he hears us. Well, that's the first thing God offers us as a priest. The second thing he offers is a companion. Look at verses 14 through 18, chapter 23. Actually, beginning in verse uh, 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened David, strengthened his hand in God, He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. It's clear here that God offers us a companion. Brothers and sisters, we've seen this throughout 1 Samuel with Jonathan and David, this friendship that they have. And it's a reminder to us that we need friends. You can't do this Christian life thing on your own. You've got you've to have someone in your life. I've had people come into my life at different times in my life where we would meet every week, we'd pray with one another, hold each other accountable, talk about the things we need help with. You need that. You cannot, you cannot be isolated and be growing in your faith as a Christian. You, God gives us people in the flesh to help us. We need that. That's what we were made for. And so we see Jonathan comes to David when he needed strength. And I love this phrase, he strengthened his hand in God. How did he do that? Well, first he did it by his physical presence, as I was referring to. His physical presence. We need to be face-to-face. Zoom is great for many things. But you've got to have something deeper than that. You've got to have something deeper than the screen in front of you. You've got to have a a physical person in front of you. That's what we were made for. As we move more and more toward a a virtual world, we've got to push back against that impulse. We need people physically in our lives. And we were made to be in the physical presence of others. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin." there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That was Jonathan for David. And so he encourages him by just his mere physical presence. He also encourages encourages him by his exhortation. How does he exhort him? What does he say? Do not fear. Do not fear. A powerful command. It's all throughout Scripture. Do not fear, David. And how does he encourage him? He says, my father will not find you. Do not worry. My father will not find you. What is true of you is going to come to pass, David. You shall be king. And what does he also say? I shall be beside you. 
We know that doesn't come to pass because Jonathan will die on the battlefield with his father. This is the last time he'll be with David. But this is his hope, that I'm going to be next to you. He didn't know that wasn't going to happen. So we can say you know, that he was with him in spirit as his friend, as his best friend. And what does he say? My father knows this. My father may be acting this crazy way, but he knows in his heart that this is going to happen. And we see them make another covenant together. This is about the third time they've covenanted together. So this is probably just a renewal of that covenant they've made together. But they're linking each other together. They're saying they're for each other. But what is the gist of what Jonathan's doing here? How is it so effective? Well, Jonathan is reminding Saul of God's promises. He encouraged David to let the facts overrule his feelings. David was, was, I'm sure, very anxious, very worried. Jonathan's saying, you will be king. Saul knows this. He's saying, in the distress of life, he's saying, fly by the instruments. Don't use your eyes. Use God's reassuring word. Del Ralph Davis says, this was the last time they would be together. And we best encourage Not by being cuddly with people, but by reminding them of the promises of God. Right? It's people don't people don't need cheerleaders. At the end of the day, many in our in our culture will say, you know, you just you be you, do you know, be true to yourself, David. Right? Do what you want to do. You're going to be fine. He doesn't do that. He reminds him of the promises of God. Del Ralph Davis says, encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. That's the best way you can encourage someone in your life. And so how can we learn to strengthen each other in the Lord? Well, for your friends, if you need to remind your friends of God's protection and promises in the word of God. Do you have a friend right now that you can think of that's going off course. That's walking away from the will of God. Remind them of God's loving rules that protect us from destruction and His welcoming arms. He'll always bring us back. Do you have a friend that needs encouragement? Can you think of one right now? Remind those friends of God's loving promises that He'll never leave them or forsake them. That is the best way. And turn, turn in the scriptures to encourage them. And today, if, if you are thinking, you know, I'm, I'm lacking friends, and we'll go through times in our lives where we, maybe we feel like we don't have a good friend, and that will happen, remind yourself that Jesus is your best friend. Especially when friends are hard to find. Jonathan Edwards, the great Ameri- probably the greatest American theologian, he wrote many, many volumes of, of, of works, was the uh, president of Princeton before it was Princeton. And he died of, a, of an inoculation gone wrong. And on his deathbed, as his family is gathering around him, he asked this question, Now where is Jesus of Nazareth? my true and never-failing friend. He was looking for his friend. 
That's, where, that's who he wanted. Is that who you will want at the end of your life? Is that, is that who you'll turn to? Because he'll be there. Do you know Jesus as friend? Do you know him? The third thing that God gives us is his providence. We see his providence on display in this chapter, especially verses 27 through 29. Well, I'll turn there in a second. I was, in, I was reminded I was in college at a in class, I think it was psychology or English, I can't remember exactly. But in the class, we were asked, everyone was asked to sort of uh, provide a statement that you like to live by, a phrase that sort of you like to live by. Um, and I remember the most common phrase people said or gave was, everything happens for a reason. Every, and this was across the board, and I'm sure many of these people were not Christians. But that was the common refrain, everything happens for a reason. I think whether you're a Christian or not, we all want a form of providence, right? Whether you call it Father, who's given us providence, or the universe right, is direct. You hear that a lot today. Every, everybody wants a form of providence. And David had God's providence, God's good providence, but Saul could no longer trust in the providence of God. If you notice Saul's actions through this chapter, he is verifying and checking and double-checking for himself. Why? Because he's not trusting in God. He has no relationship with God. Look at verse 22. He's telling them to go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he's very cunning. In verse 23, come back to me with sure information. He's doing his best to track David down not relying on the Lord anymore. And we see that he almost gets David, don't we? We see that he's getting closer and closer. Look, verse 25, And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So he's very close at this moment. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. But what do we read? As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, what happens? A messenger came to Saul. And this messenger said, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. When you read a messenger came to Saul, do not read that as a coincidence. This is God's intervention to save David from Saul. God intervenes. John Calvin underscored the high stakes of believing or rejecting this doctrine of God's providence. He says, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. You are given the highest blessing if you know God's providence in your life. As we close, I have an application for you. Paul Tripp says to do these three things at the outset. He does this at the outset of his day, and I'm going to encourage you to do it too. Pray these prayers. Lord, say this first. I'm a person in desperate need of help today. That's your first acknowledgement when you wake up in the morning. 
I'm in desperate need of help. Number two, Lord, won't you in your grace send your helpers my way? Send your helpers my way. And number three, Lord, give, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. Number one, I'm in desperate need. Send me your helpers. And when those helpers come, help me to <laughs> receive that help. Stephen Whitmer writes, Of course we can never fully know God's purposes, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't ponder them. After all, our ignorance of the bad intentions of those who hurt us doesn't stop us from endlessly speculating on their intentions, right? Isn't that true? When, someone, when somebody does something bad to you, you're always speculating on why. If we're going to speculate, he says, why not speculate on God's good purposes instead? If you're stuck in traffic, speculate on God's good purposes in that moment. If you're stuck on the JRB, what is God doing to bless you in that moment? You know, that hot, miserable day back when I was young and back in, um, outside of Lynchburg, that hot day was topped off with being locked out of a house. And I don't remember thinking about all the, the badness of that day, difficulty. I'm sure I grumbled. I'm sure I was upset. But I never realized how good the water was going to taste out of that hose. And nor did I imagine that the memory of that day with my grandfather would be this sweet memory in my mind as I ponder even now God's good providence in my life. Right? It, it sometimes takes years and decades to look back. We're given this truth that many of you know in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good. Sometimes it's hard to believe that, right? All things work together for good. See, behind every valley and mountaintop, joy and in sorrow is the purpose and plan of God that is for you in Christ. As Paul says, we can rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So remember that. As you go through things, look for God's providential caring hand and realize and remember that he offers us a priest, God's word. He offers us companions, in our lives, and he offers his providence, but we must choose to take it. That's why I said offers throughout this sermon today. He's offering it. We have to take it. We have to accept it. And that will be your rock. Jesus will be your rock, who in God's providence lived righteously in your place, died willingly in your place, and by faith secures our place with God. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that you've not left us in the wilderness without provisions, that you, you didn't leave David in his wanderings. You didn't leave him hopeless. You gave him, you gave him good things. You gave him your word. You gave him Jonathan. And you saved him by your providence and your care. And Father, we have much to look at in our lives that we don't sometimes. Would you help us to do that? Turn our eyes, turn our hearts, most importantly, to the cross where we were given salvation. 
through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and who intercedes for us even now at your right hand. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.